Father, you say in your word that if any of us lack wisdom, we are to ask of you and you give to all men liberally. You don't hold it back. I think, uh, I think we can make a case that every guy in here in some way, shape, or form is in need of wisdom. We are all facing different issues in life. Some of us uh, are under some strains in, in our, our business that we have not uh, ever seen. And we, we really need the mind of Christ. We need your direction and we need clarity. We need wise counsel. Your word says that in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. We thank you that we not only have your word and we not only have the privilege of coming to you, our Father, in prayer and that you've promised to give us wisdom, but oftentimes you dispense that wisdom through other believers who have a walk with you uh, that, we, that we know of and that we respect. We thank you for a church. We thank you for a pastor who preaches the word of God without apology and who honors you. This is the foundation upon which this church is built. We're living in a time, we're living in an age where we have many who are tickling ears, who are using gimmicks, but we have discovered, Lord, that those things are just, uh, well, they're just useless. It's, it's just playing games. And, and where we are in life right now, we cannot afford to play games. We cannot afford to play church. We cannot mess around with religion. We're here because we are serious about what's going on in our lives and in our world. We need to know you. We need to grow in the knowledge of you. And then not only grow in knowledge, but then apply it. We don't want these giant heads full of biblical knowledge. We want it to circulate through our lives and circulate in our hearts and circulate in our homes that we would take this truth that, that you have been so gracious to give us and that then we would apply it to these situations. We're facing a business dilemma. May we take the truth where you've told us that you don't want us being sick with worry. Apply the truth to the situation. You're our father. You know that we need all these things. You're well aware of where we are. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply our faith so that we could sleep, so that we could rest, that we could cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. Help us, Lord, to refuse to be burdened. Help us to refuse to be weighed down. Help us to refuse to give in to the temptation of worry because we've given that to you. And we would simply ask, Lord, that you would honor your word and come through at the moment we need you to come through. And as you have called us to wait, help us to wait with expectant hearts. Not worrying hearts, not sick hearts, but, but hearts that, that, that know you and focus on you and focus on your character. There are guys in here that are facing health issues and have never faced health issues before in their lives. And, and, and they're, they're facing the reality of, of not being able to do quite what they used to do. And that is hard. That doesn't, that's not easy. We don't adjust to that well as men. Give those guys grace and mercy. We're, we're all having to live in some way, shape, or form with decreased expectations. It's just part of life. Everybody in some way, shape, or form is tightening the belt. We're, we're in for a long ride here that's not going to be pleasant. And, and we sense that in our gut, and we know it from your word. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Help us to be free from fear and anxiety and worry. Help us to enjoy our privileges as sons of the king. Every guy here is dealing with different stuff. None of us are adequate to meet the needs of the guy that's sitting next to us. But by your spirit, Lord, you have made us adequate. We, we acknowledge our inadequacy. But by your spirit, you have made us adequate as, as ministers of a new covenant. Help us to be sensitive to those around us, even as we leave tonight, conversations that might arise, divine appointments that you might have intended for us tonight. May we be quick to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. May this time not be wasted. May it be significant because you have made 
covenant with us. Encourage our hearts. Shore us up. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard of the Murphy Oil Company. The founder of that company was a guy by the name of Charles Haywood Murphy, Jr., I read a statement from him, just a short quotation, and I thought it was very applicable to our study in Daniel. Here's what he said. He said, when I might have been a college freshman, I had already found oil, had 40 employees, and I owed over $100,000. Being a freshman really didn't appeal to me. Guy didn't go to college. Uh, At the age of 19, he was uh, living life and initiating some things and carrying great responsibility. Uh, we're living in an age where uh, we have this thing called adolescence. You know, they didn't used to have adolescence. They didn't used to have what they call teenagers. That's a recent development sociologically. But, but now, not only do we have adolescence where kids are teenagers, but we have something called prolonged adolescence. In other words, a young, a young teenage kid or a kid in his 20s will be immature and irresponsible for as long as it's possible. That's precisely what Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, did not do. If you've been with us in our study, you know that their lives were turned upside down because some events took place in the nation of Judah that had been prophesied Because for hundreds of years, through a series of kings, most of them who refused to honor the one true God, God through the prophets said, if you don't obey me and if you don't adhere to the covenant, I'm going to bring the curses on you. In 605 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on the face of the earth, the king of Babylon, comes into Jerusalem and it's the first deportment of three. It was done incrementally. It was done in stages. But, but this was part of the judgment of God on the nation of Judah. The, the northern kingdom had already gone into captivity a century before into Assyria. Now the southern kingdom is taken into Babylon. And this is where Daniel and his buddies find themselves They're in their teenage years. We don't know how exactly, what, exactly what their age bracket is. But junior, senior, freshman in college isn't too far off the mark. They're being uh, indoctrinated in a three-year training program. They are connected, we know from Daniel chapter 1, in some way, shape, or form, they, they have a, a heritage in the royal family. They're the noblemen. They're the cream of the crop. And they have been brought to Babylon. We saw last week that in Daniel 2, they're in a crisis. They're in a big-time crisis, and their life is on the line just in, in way of summary, very quickly, uh, in Daniel 2, the king has a dream, and the king has got all these high-paid consultants around him, and it's their job to interpret his dreams, but he's kind of sick and tired of their, of their cons and their schemes, and he says to these guys, look it, I know the drill, I tell you the dream, you tell me the interpretation, but I'm not screwing around anymore. Here's the deal, if you guys are so good and you're so smart, you tell me the dream. And you get the dream right, then I might pay attention to your interpretation. They say, there's not a man on the earth who can do that, O king. And he says, well, let me tell you something. There better be a man on the earth, because if you don't come through, I'm going to start picking you guys off, and I'm going to start taking hits. Daniel finds out about this, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find out about it. And they're in crisis. That's the first half of Daniel chapter 2. That's what we looked at last week. There's a, there's a phrase in Psalm 32. Actually, it's Psalm 31, verse 15. And the phrase is simply this. It's a profound phrase. I have flipped through Psalms. About once a month, I just, I, just, I just kind of flip through the Psalms. I've worked my way through the Psalms, and I've underlined certain Psalms. Uh, some are marked in yellow. So in other words, as I go through the Psalms, there are certain verses that come off the page at me. About once a month, I just roll through it. 
And every time I come to Psalm 31:15, you know what it does? It calms me down if I'm disturbed. It, uh, if I've got anxiety, it stabilizes me. If uh, I've lost perspective, it immediately brings me into perspective. Psalm 31:15 basically and simply says this: "My times are in your hand." That's it. My life is in your hand. Everything from my conception to my birth to my death and everything in between, my times are in your hand. And when you begin to get a grip on this, you know, I was on a plane this past week going to Tampa. And the lady behind me uh, started coughing uncontrollably. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to die in the next three, four weeks here. (laughs) Because all I've been reading about was the swine flu. Uh, so far, I'm okay. You know, I, we're hearing a lot about the swine flu, and what do you do? And, you know, you get the shots, you not get the shots, you know. Then you read, if you're into the alternative stuff, you know, you take a lot of vitamin D, you take a lot of vitamin C, you're taking all, you know, whatever. I, I'm not so concerned about the swine flu as I am the swoon flu. What is the swoon flu? The swoon flu is just simply looking around and seeing what is going on and swooning, and fainting, and becoming weary in well-doing, because it looks like we're facing overwhelming odds. It's discouraging out there. I don't know if you've noticed this. It is flat-out discouraging. Almost on an hourly basis, uh, to watch the dismantling of a nation is hard to swallow. And it's on so many fronts, and we want to do something about it, and you want to, but it's just, anyway. We talked about this. And if you're not careful, you can lose your contentment, you can lose your joy, you can get very, very frustrated, very, very um, worked up, pent up, lose perspective, and start swooning just from the pressure, just from the anxiety, just from the fear. So how do you fight off, not the swine flu, but the swoon flu? You fight off the swoon flu, and I, again, guys, I'm telling you, you got to quit coming, because every week I'm going to give you the same message. I'm just telling you up front. But I've got grounds to give you the same message, and I'll tell you why. Because it's in the text every week. How do you fight off the swoon How do you fight off discouragement and despair? The sovereignty of God. It's the only way you fight it off. If your God is small, let me tell you something. You are are toast. If your God is small, you have no basis for hope. You have no basis for contentment. You have no basis for any kind of internal peace if your God is small. But if your God is sovereign, you're good. You're, You're better than good. You're secure, you're safe, you have a future. I know the plans that I have for you. Not for calamity, but for welfare, to give you a future and a hope. God said in Jeremiah. A guy named John Rylands wrote this poem. Listen, it's all based on Psalm 3115. Here's what he says. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise. All my times are in thy hand, All events at thy command. His decree who formed the earth fixed my first and second birth. Parents, native place and time, all appointed were by him. He that formed me in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my time shall ever be ordered by his wise decree. Times of sickness, times of health, times of poverty and wealth, times of trial and of grief, times of triumph and relief, times the tempter's power to prove, times to test the Savior's love. All must come and last and end as shall please my heavenly friend. Plagues and death around me fly. 
Till he bids, I cannot die. Nor a single shaft can hit till the love of God sees fit. Let me tell you something. That's better than Mother Goose. Huh? That's straight out of the Word of God. You know what that's all about? That's all about the sovereignty of God. When your God is great, when your God's in control, when your God is in charge, you know what? You're good. You're covered. You're safe. Doesn't mean you won't have times of trial, difficulty, hardship, because that's part of the game plan. The Lord told us up front that was part of the game plan. That's how you build spiritual muscle. That's how you become a man. That's how you become a man of faith. You go through hard stuff. You, you, you got an easy life, you're not going to grow. You got an easy life, you're going to get spoiled. You got an easy life, you're going to be a wuss. And we're in a battle. As Spurgeon said, God's greatest warriors come out of the highlands of affliction. So that's part of the divine plan. It's okay. We're not in it by ourselves. He's with us. He makes a way. We grow through the difficulty. But we can't forget that God is sovereign. What that does is it enables us not to swoon when things get tough and we're in crisis. Daniel's in crisis. We're going to see in just a minute. It's the wrong book. give you another shot on uh, the sovereignty of God and the purpose of God and the plan of God. A um, guy named B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Quite a guy. He wrote some great stuff. Uh, interesting guy because he was real big on the sovereignty of God and the control of God over all things, as you'll see in just a minute. What's interesting is that when Warfield was a young man, Married the wife of his dreams. Uh, when he was 25, it was the best year of his life because he finished his Ph.D. program. Uh, he, um, he was appointed a professor at a theological seminary that was his dream position. And that same year, he married his wife. Uh, he grew up in a family of means. And uh, he decided they were going to take the honeymoon of, uh, of honeymoons. And so he took some money, and they planned a trip to Europe. And they were over there just about in the first week. They planned on being over there six, seven, eight weeks. They were there about a week. Uh, they were out in some English gardens looking around, and suddenly there was a storm and, you know, lightning. And his wife was hit by lightning, and she was paralyzed and was paralyzed for the rest of her life. And for the rest of his life, he never left her more than two hours at a time. As he taught the seminary, they had a, uh, their home was on campus, and he would take care of his wife. He would tend to his wife, take care of his needs, and then he would go to his class, teach a class, come back. They never took another trip together. They never traveled. They were never sexually intimate. You should know this about this man because of what he says about God. I'm just going to pick up right in the middle of this essay. He says, such a God, he's talking about a sovereign God, a purposeful God. Such a God could not be thought of otherwise than as the free determiner, watch this, of all that comes to pass in the world, which is the product of his creative act. That's interesting, isn't it? This guy had a pain-free life. You might say, well, I can understand why you'd say that. He didn't have a pain-free life. He says, and the doctrine of providence, which is spread over the pages of the Old Testament, fully bears out this expectation. You mind if I read a little theology to you? Is this okay? Because see, you've you got to live off theology. What's theology? It's just the truth about God that comes right out of God's word. And I'm not going to read all the verses, but if you look at this guy's stuff in here, he'll go about two sentences, and then he'll give you about nine different verses to back up what he just said. And most of it are in Roman numerals, and I can only go up to 50 in Roman numerals, so I'm not going to give you all of it. Okay? But just, get, just, just kind of... Uh, we're going to troll this, and let's see what we pick up. The almighty maker of all that is represented equally as the irresistible ruler of all that he has made is Jehovah, and he sits as king forever. Even the common language of life was affected by this pervasive point of view, so that, for example, it is rare to meet with such a phrase in the Old Testament as, quote-unquote, it rains. Men, by preference, spoke of God sending rain. Not that it rained, but God sent the rain. Why? Because he ruled and reigned all things. 
The vivid sense of dependence upon God, this witness extended throughout every relation of life. Accident or chance was excluded. It didn't exist. All things, without exception, indeed, are disposed by him, and his will is the ultimate account of all that occurs. Heaven and earth and all that is in them are the instruments through which he works his ends. Nature, nations, and the fortunes of the individual alike present in all their changes the transcript of his purpose. The winds are his messengers, the flaming fire his servant. Every natural occurrence is his act. Prosperity is his gift, and if calamity falls upon a man, it is the Lord that has done it. Amos 3.6. Here's a memory verse for you. You guys still with me? Amos 3.6. Can a calamity come upon a city unless the Lord sends it? Interesting. Some of you guys are uncomfortable with that. You ought to read the verse. Oh, and then you ought to read Deuteronomy 32. And you ought to read uh, Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 says, I am the God who causes well-being. Don't you love well-being? I do. You know what well-being means? You got, a, you, got a, you, got, you got good money in the bank. You got good health. Your team's winning. Family's doing well. Kids are doing well. Life's good. It's well-being, right? We all want well-being. I'm for, I'm for well-being. I'm the God who, who causes well-being, catch this, and creates calamity. He's in charge of it all. Deuteronomy 32, he says, I am the God who um, heals. Praise God. He says, but he also says, I'm the God who wounds. He says right in there, too, he says, I'm the God who gives life. We're all pro-life. I'm the God who gives life. Oh, I'm the God who kills. He's God. He's never the author of evil because the Lord is good and does good. Psalm 119, 68. This is, this is a great God we're dealing with. This is a massive God we're dealing with. This is a tremendous, awe-inspiring God. That when you get to know him, you love him and you fear him. Not fear out of terror, but fear out of unbelievable respect. And awe. I stand amazed in the presence, the old song says, of Jesus the Nazarene. One more little shot from uh, Warfield. He says, throughout the Old Testament, behind the processes of nature, the march of history, and the fortunes of each individual life alike, watch this, there is steadily kept in view the governing hand of God working out his preconceived plan. God's got a plan, guys. And if he doesn't, we're in trouble, but he does. He does. And I've said it many times in here, and I'm going to say it many times more. And what's happening today is, I don't care what you've read, I don't care what you've seen, I, he's working the plan and... Every guy in this room is right on schedule, and the whole world is right on schedule because he governs the world. You say, yeah, but I don't get it. You're not supposed to get it. You're not supposed to get it. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8. As high as heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. We're not going to get it unless we're looking at life through the lens of the word of God Told you the story this summer, went in, got new glasses, get in there, they lie, you know, shut the door, put the thing up on my, you know, is this better or is this better? Is this better or is this better? This is better. This is the lens, right here. Okay? Let's go to Daniel 2. Because in Daniel 2, we're going to see all this lived out. Uh, Daniel's in crisis. Hey, a lot of you guys are in crisis. If you're not, oh, by the way, if you're not in crisis, it's coming. And once again, I just want to encourage you. If, if you're not in crisis right now, great. Praise God for that. We're not in continual, perpetual crisis. There are times where God gives us seasons of favor, and, you know, it's, it's, it's great. He's a gracious God. He's been very, very good to us. 
And even when we're in crisis, he's been so gracious that the crisis isn't worse than it is. Is that not true? Yes, it's true. It's all a matter of perspective. So are we going to be in crisis? Yeah, we're going to be in crisis. But we have this great God who oversees and controls the crisis. And he's doing something in the crisis. And he's doing something through the crisis. We, hey, these crises aren't just running around randomly. They're purposeful. All suffering in the Christian life is purposeful. It's not random. It's not chance. It's not coincidence. God is working. There's a reason. You say, well, I don't get the reason. Oh, you're not going to get it most times. We don't always understand what's going on, but we do know this. Our Father, our sovereign God, our great God, is in control, and he's worked in his plan through all things. So, Daniel 2. Uh, you, you, you know what's happened? You know, uh, the, the, this powerful man, Nebuchadnezzar, says, hey, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You guys, you guys are so smart. You got all your PhDs, wrote all your dissertations. You tell me the dream. They say, there's not a man on the earth who can do that. Well, then you're in big trouble. Daniel finds out about it. Daniel gets his guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what do they do? They seek God, and God tells Daniel, this is the dream. Let's pick it up in verse 25. Daniel tells Arioch, the guy who's head of this whole operation, I've got the dream, let me see the king. Verse 25, then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Actually, he didn't find a man. He's kind of taking some credit there. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now remember, if Daniel's wrong on this dream, it's his head. He's either got it or he doesn't. He's putting his whole life on the line. Interesting, isn't it, how oftentimes in the Christian life, God will hem us in and put us in situations where at times our very survival is at stake. And if God doesn't come through, you're done. You're just done. You see, what do you need in a situation like that? You need a Savior. You need a Savior. Jesus saved us on the cross by his substitutionary death. Saved us from our sin. But I have found that as I go through life every day, he's saving me. He's sustaining me. He's providing for me. He's keeping me. He's making a way for me where there is no way. Boys love Psalm 46.1. And I love the New American Standard, the margin. I like the New American Standard because in the margin, they give you the rough-hewn translation uh, throughout the New American Standard Bible. You'll see a little number next to the, and not the one that's in your Bible isn't correct, but, but you know, they'll try to make it a little more uh, syntactically correct. But they'll give you just the rough hewn, you know, you run your hand across it, you'll get splinters translation. And in Psalm 46.1, it says, our God, is a, uh, our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. That's, that's what it means. But in the margin, the rough-hewn translation is, God is our refuge and strength. Watch this. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. You're in a crisis. What's that? That's a tight place. You can't make your mortgage payment. That's a tight place unless God comes through. Your marriage is over unless... God comes through. You're, you're terminal this month unless God comes through. We're all facing different things. Daniel's in a tight place. God either comes through or he's done. Verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, now watch, watch how he gives the credit to God. As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, king, you're a pagan king. You don't know the one true God of Israel. 
However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what should take place, to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. Watch this. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now, beginning with verse 31 to 35, the dream is described. 31 through 35. And once again, he's either going to get it or he's going to miss it and it's going to cost him his life. Here we go. He describes a dream. 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. I would have, I'd give anything to see the face of this king right here after the first sentence. Wouldn't you? He had to be... I mean, his jaw was on the floor and his tongue was licking the dust. How the heck did you know that? And notice the king doesn't interrupt him. The king doesn't say a word. Yeah, because he's all ears. You know what? This guy, this, this teenage kid is spot on. The head of that statue... Now, he's giving me the detail. The head of that statue was made. Hey, this isn't a Gene Dixon prophecy. <laughs> this isn't the guy on TV, John, what's his face? You know, uh, you ever seen this guy? He, he, he's got these, these people, you know, in the audience, and he's communicating with their dead loved ones. You know, oh, I'm here, your husband, he... Uh, I keep getting Dunkin', Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin', and the lady goes, Dunkin', no, he, no, Krispy Kremes. Oh, yeah, Krispy Kremes, yeah. You ever seen this stuff? This sucker doesn't know what he, I mean, and if he gets anything right, it's demonic. It's not of God. There's no hymen and hawn and 16% and accuracy. This is right on the money. The head of that statue. Watch this. Watch him. He just goes down and dissects this sucker. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms, silver. Its belly and its thighs, bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet, this is wild. You talk about detail here. Its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. He's, he's absolutely on target. Then he says this. Uh, by the way, King, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Uh, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream. Once again, the king hasn't said a word. He's just listening, because you know what? This is all ringing true. There's, this kid has got it. There's something supernatural going on here. And by the way, this guy's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Watch this. Now, in 36, in 36, he's going to give him the interpretation. And, and what's going to happen here? In 31 through 35, I'm kind of on a roll with different letters. A couple weeks ago, I was on O's. And then last week, I was on F's. I think last week, I was doing flummoxed. And uh, flabbergasted. I'm on the D's this week. I've really never done this before, but I'm kind of, I don't know, kind of a scrabble thing. I don't know what it is, but I got some D's for you. I'm just breaking this dream up 
So 31 through 35, the dream is described. In, in the following verses, 36 to 45, what's going to happen is destiny is determined. Let me say that again. Destiny is determined. Now he's going to interpret the dream, and he's going to tell this king, all right, what is the dream? That's the dream. Yeah, you got the dream. All right, what does it mean? Let me show you what it means. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. And he was on the earth. Most powerful man on the face of the earth. He didn't have a parliament. Didn't have a congress. Didn't have... His word was law. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. Watch this. You are the head of gold. All right? So that head of gold, that's you. All right, next verse. So he interpreted the head. Watch this. After you, so he's, he's saying, you and your kingdom, you're the first part of the statue. You're the head. Now watch this. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. What he's telling him, he's telling him the plan of God for the future. Uh, when you study history, you've got all kinds of great nations, but there have only been four great empires. And what's happening in this passage, Daniel is telling him about the four great empires. Now, let me just read it, and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll pick this apart. You guys still with me? Okay. How's your anxiety level, by the way? You doing okay? Sure you are. You know why? Because we're reading about God. Right? You're not thinking about Congress right now. You're thinking about the glory of God. And you just, you're, just, you're just doing better. Why? Because God's got a plan. Right? Yeah. Take two chapters and call me in the morning. That's what you do. You just read the word of God and apply it, okay? Watch this. After you, there will rise another kingdom. By the way, this is, this is Medo-Persia, and it's Greece, okay? After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. Then, here's the third kingdom, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then, there will be a fourth kingdom. As strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, this kingdom, he's referring to, will be a divided kingdom. Bah, but it will have in it a toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now he's going to go to the next kingdom. This is an interesting kingdom, this next one. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That's the kingdom that's got my vote. I vote for that kingdom. I vote for that party. And so do you. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure for eight years. If you're reading the text, it's not what it says. It will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future 
so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now let's break this dream down. I'm going to let Warren Wiersbe do it because he does such a good job in, in so few words. Wiersbe says this. He says, the image Nebuchadnezzar beheld in his dream depicted what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. The reference is Luke 21, verses 24 um, through 28. The times of the Gentiles, a period of time that began, listen carefully, a period of time that began in 605 B.C. when Jerusalem was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. All of this stuff revolves around Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Back then, it all revolved around Jerusalem. It kind of all revolves around Jerusalem today, doesn't it? Because all this stuff that's going on is all about Jerusalem and, and Israel, which God calls Jerusalem the center of the world. And it still is, because God governs history, and God's leading history somewhere. Wiersbe says, this period will end when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, Luke 21, 25 through 28. During the times of the Gentiles, there will be four successive kingdoms, climaxed by a fifth kingdom that will destroy the other four and fill the earth. The fifth kingdom is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, let's go back and break down the four kingdoms, okay? Just very quickly, a paragraph on each. So the head of gold, well, we saw in the text, that's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. That kingdom lasted from 636 B.C. to 539 B.C. All right, then you got the next kingdom. That's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. That's the breast and arms of silver. Uh, that from 539 to 330 B.C. Darius the Mede conquered Babylon. That's Daniel chapter 5, verse 30. And by the way, you say, well, how do you know this? We're not gonna... It's just history. He says, look, you're, there's going to be you, and then there's going to be another. Oh, yeah, and you know what? They were looking ahead. We're looking back. It was the Medes and the Persians. Daniel was there for the whole 70-year captivity. In fact, it says in chapter 1, it mentions Cyrus... Who was Cyrus, king of Persia? And in the book of Isaiah, God spoke of um, Cyrus and said, by the way, when the captivity is over, you're going to let my people go back to Jerusalem and help them rebuild it. And God said that 150 years before the guy was ever born. That's what you call sovereignty. That's what you call control. So where do these kings come from? God creates them. God oversees them. Uh, God uh, raises them up, God sets them down. Okay, the, let's go to the third kingdom. The, bellies and the, the belly and the thighs of bronze. That's the Grecian kingdom. That was 330 to 63 B.C. Alexander the Great established what was probably the largest empire in ancient times. He died in 323 B.C. This is called world history. Then you got the fourth kingdom, the fourth kingdom. That's the Roman Empire, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. Roman Empire, 63 B.C. to A.D. 475. Now watch this. Wearsby says this. <clears throat> iron represents strength, but clay represents weakness. Rome was strong in law, organization, and military might, but the empire included so many different peoples that this created weakness. Daniel 2.43 says the people will be a mixture and will not remain united. i got to read something to you here. Ah, i got a third, I got a third D, and I'm going to do it right here. Here's my third D. Decay and decline are inevitable. Okay? Speaking of, these, of the world and where it's going, decay and decline are inevitable. You guys ever listen to Jay Vernon McGee on the radio? I think if he were alive today, he'd be 104. I think that's right, either 104 or 106. But, you know, he teaches through the Bible every five years. And he died, what, how many years ago? 15, 20 years ago? And so they just keep playing stuff. And then they took all the transcripts and... Put it in, I don't know, five volumes. Here's what he says about Daniel. Um, 
this is good. He's talking about the Roman Empire. And he's talking about the decay, and he's talking about the decline, not only of the Roman Empire, but of all these four empires that are mentioned. Am I losing you guys? Are you still there? Now you say, why is this important? Well, it's important because uh, it's important that we understand, because I, I want you guys to have hope and joy, and I want you to understand that things are going to get better and better. That's not what I want you to understand. From the Word of God, what I want you to understand is things are going to get worse and worse. If you were here on Sunday to hear Chuck teach on 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, but 2 Timothy 3 basically fits in with all this, that things are going to get worse and worse. And we see it around us, don't we? We see it every stinking day. It's getting worse and worse. Every day, it's getting worse and worse. Well, that's just the Word of God. Okay, listen to what McGee says. And I'm going to do it in his voice and his accent. <laughs> no, I'm not. Speaking of the statue. The image represents four empires, and there are several observations to be made about them. There is a definite deterioration from one kingdom to another, and this is made clear in several very specific ways. This deterioration is contrary to modern philosophy and opinion. Our viewpoint today is that we are all getting better and better every day. Evolution is at work, and it is onward and upward forever. Uh-uh. What we have here is the deterioration from one kingdom to the other. Each is inferior to its predecessor. This is revealed through the image in several ways. Number one, through the quality of the metals. Gold is finer than silver. Silver is finer than brass. Brass is finer than iron. Iron is better than clay. As you go down the statue through the empires, there's a definite deterioration. Uh, the position of each metal. The head has more honor than do the feet. Uh, another reason, the specific statement of Scripture. Verse 39, and after you shall arise another kingdom that's inferior to you. Uh, the division of sovereignty. The definite division of sovereignty denotes weakness. Follow this carefully. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, but there are two arms of the media Persian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was strong because there was not that division. There was one ruler. The Greco-Macedonian Empire begins with one, but soon is divided into four. Rome has two legs of iron, but it eventuates into ten toes, which are composed of both iron and clay. Things are going to get worse and worse because it's deteriorating, guys. So we shouldn't be surprised the days that we're living in. Because we are in the last days. Now, you got this fifth kingdom, though. What's this fifth kingdom? It's this stone, this uncut by human hand stone. What is that all about? Well, Larry Richards has got a quick little thing on this. What's the stone? What's the rock? Let me give you a couple verses here. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, Jesus is the rock that Moses struck. 1 Peter 2.8 says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to unbelievers. Ephesians 2.20 says Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. This last kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. He's going to come and he's going to destroy all the other kingdoms. And his kingdom will endure for what? Forever. He's, when he returns, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. There's going to be an earthquake, it's going to split in half. This, this is amazing stuff. And I want to say this again. If I'm going to be content in this day and age, if I'm going to have any peace, if I'm going to have any joy, I need to be spending more time in this word and less time with Fox News. And the more I reverse that process, I'm going to lose my joy, I'm going to lose my peace, I'm going to lose my contentment. I've got to look through my life through the lens of the word of God. 
Daniel's in crisis. He interprets the dream, and he's spot on. He gets it right. He tells this king what's happening. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. Here's the most powerful man on the face of the earth, falling on his face and worshiping a teenage kid who's in essence a slave. That's, that's pretty wild. Uh, he gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Then the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king, and all these other guys, all these other PhDs and conjurers and magicians, you know what? They had to be going, Because Daniel just saved their lives. They were going to be dead within a week. Ten days, whatever. They were gone. They were history. It was, they were toast. It was over. See, this just wasn't a witness to the king. It was a witness to all those false, counterfeit prophets and soothsayers. Then the king, watch this. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now Daniel is running those guys, sort of like Joseph in Egypt. And Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, and Daniel was at the king's court. So what do you have here? Daniel experienced the providence of God. Uh, guys, I, I, I want to run this home, because we, we, we talk about the fact that we see things are getting worse and worse, and things, oh my gosh, this is happening, yeah, yeah. But, but don't forget, in the scriptures... When God judges nations, there are a group of people who still continue to experience God's blessing, and they're the remnant. God takes care of his people. So do we have to be discouraged? Do we have to be fearful? Do we have to walk around tied up in knots? No. No. And if there's ever a time we need to hear this, it's now. God's providence is still at work. His sovereignty is still in control. His provision, he can make a way where there is no way. Right where you are right now. doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. doesn't matter what's going on in the Congress. or this, He'll make a way for you. He'll make a way for you. When I was in seminary, I went to Dallas to do my doctorate, but I did my master's at another seminary in Oregon. While I was there, I was halfway through, and I would work on the truck docks at night, unloading freight, and I'd go to school during the day. And they had a recession that hit, and it was pretty bad. It hit Oregon really, really hard. And I was unloading trucks one night, and the supervisor came around and said, you're done. Pretty much all the part-time guys, students were done. We were done. And so I'm looking for jobs, looking for jobs. I can't find anything. And what happened was, this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it reached a point where, I, 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 you know what? I, I, I'm out of money. I can't find any work. So I got to stop seminary, and I'm going back home to California because I can probably work on the freight docks in San Jose or in San Francisco airport. So that's what I did. A friend of mine at seminary said, hey, Steve, before you do that, let me make a call. I said, okay. He said, when are you going? I said, I'm going Friday. I said, I mean, I've, I've done everything. I mean, I'm done. This is after weeks. Um, Later that afternoon, he said, hey, I got an appointment with you. And he gave me this man's name. And this man was president and CEO of the largest corporation in that state. Uh, his office was on the top four of the largest skyscraper in that state. And the next day, about 3 o'clock, I walked into this man's office. It was massive. And it was a little intimidating. But my friend had known him since my friend was this high family friend. And he said, Steve, you ought to go in and talk to him. I told him a little bit about your situation. You're in school, and he knows the seminary and all that. So I go, I got an appointment with this man. One of, those, one of the most powerful men in the entire state has the largest corporation. I walk in, sit down. He says, tell me what's going on. I explain the situation. And I said, you know, I just haven't been able to find work, so I'm going to go back to California, and I'm going to work for six months a year, save up money so I can finish out seminary. He said, don't you think it'd be a lot better if you could just stay here and go to school? And I said, well, yeah, I do. I, I just... Man, I'm running into just dead ends. He said, well, let me call my director of human resources. They got like 38,000 people working for him or something. 
He said, can you come back here at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? And I said, well, yes, sir, I can. He said, I think it'd be good if you could stay and work and finish out school. Christian man, love the Lord. I said, oh, well, thank you. He said, why don't you come back at 4 tomorrow? And I told my friend what happened. He goes, oh, Steve, that's great. He said, I, he's going to find something for you. And if he, even if he doesn't, he's got a foundation, and he's got millions and millions of dollars in. I mean, he can, he's going to work something for you. I said, man, this is unbelievable. So I walked in there, 4 o'clock the next day, and um, he said, well, how are things going? And I said, well, just about the same. <laughs> and he said, well, he said, I appreciate you coming in. God bless you. Uh, I know he'll make a way for you. And then he got on his feet. And I was stunned because it was such a reversal. I, it couldn't have been, I mean, he was, he was nice, but he wasn't warm. He was aloof. It, it, it was so strange. I, I mean, I was a little bit taken back. I mean, he was, and, and I, I, I said, sir, may I clarify that I came back in today because yesterday you asked me to come back in. He said, oh, yes, I did. And I thank you for coming in as he led me to the door. I took the elevator down. I'm trying to assimilate this. I'm walking out the marble steps, down the marble steps. And I'm thinking to my, and I said this, to, I said, you know, Lord, that was so weird <laughs> that you're in it. And I was going back to my apartment and picking up my stuff, and I drove that night to California. It was it. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. The CEO's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Now, what's my goal? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to work and get through seminary, but there are no jobs. See, nobody can get hired. This guy's got the biggest corporation. He didn't even have a job for me. So I go back to California. I think, well, I've always gotten jobs in San Jose or San Francisco. I go back down there, and guess what? I can't find any work. I can't find For weeks, all my places I used to work all the way going through school, they got nothing. They've got nothing. This is going on for weeks and weeks. About four or five weeks into it, one of the guys says, hey, I can use you Thursday night for four hours. I work Thursday night for four hours. He said, I might be able to use you next Wednesday night. I said, okay. And I'm working four hours a week. And my goal is to save money to go back to seminary. And I'm living at home when I'm 25. Am I frustrated? Yeah. Yeah. And there's no economic stimulus package that's helping me. <laughs> I'm just kind of stuck. And I'm frustrated because I'm a young guy and I want to get with it. I want to get through seminary. I want to work. Hey, I'll work 14, 16 hours a day. Just give me a job. There's no work. This is going on for one month, two months, three months, four months. And we get right about into late April, and I'm doing a part-time shift. And this guy comes up to me, and he goes, hey, are you willing to work graveyard? I said, yeah. He said, I got a 40-hour shift graveyard open up in two weeks. You can have it. I said, I'll take it. See, All right. Great. They pay you more money graveyard anyway. I don't have a girlfriend. I can work graveyard. This is great. I mean, I was thrilled. Sunday night, I go to church, Peninsula Bible Church. They have a service called Body Life back then. Ray Stedman's the pastor. And during Body Life, a lot of college students is kind of laid back. And one of the things they do at Body Life is they have a teaching time and worship time. Then they open it up for sharing. People have prayer requests or something. And I'm sitting over there. I'm sitting on that side. And the sharing, everything was, it was kind of down that night. A lot of people had heavy burdens and prayer requests. And everybody that was sharing saying, I have a hard time, I'm discouraged because I've been waiting, and I've been waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm asking God, and I'm getting no answers. I'm sitting over there thinking, well, I just had an answer. And they got a guy walking around with a mic, and if you raise your hand, so I raised my hand, and Ron Ritchie, he was doing the MC, he called on me, and I got up and I said, you know, I want to encourage you because I just had a great answer to prayer. And I've been waiting for four or five months to get a job, and I just landed a job, and I start in two weeks full time, and everybody applauded, you know, and, you know. It was great, and it was encouraging. So they pray at the end of the service. This guy walks up to me, and the guy says, I know you from somewhere. And he says, tell me your name. And I told him, and he goes, I said, tell me your name. He told me, he said, I'm from Tucson, Arizona. I said, yeah, well, okay, I, I'm trying to make a connection. He said, I know, I know you. I've seen you somewhere, you know. And I said, well, I've only been to Tucson once, and I was there with some guys from college, and we were at a church. He goes, that's my church. I was a college pastor. And I said, oh, yeah. They're just there like, you know, one night or something, overnight for a deal. 
He goes, I'm the pastor of the church now. I said, really? And he says, you know such and such. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm with, he was my roommate in college. So he said, I said, so what are you doing out here? He said, well, now I'm the pastor of the church, and we're reconfiguring the church, and we used to hold this position doctrinally, but now we're switched over here. Well, the position they used to hold is how I was raised. And where they're going is where I was. And he said, I'm out here looking for a guy to pastor the church with me. And I said, well, that's great. I'm sure you'll find somebody. <laughs> and he says, what are you doing right now? I said, I'm just going home to be with mommy and daddy. I'm 25. I mean, I've got nothing to do. He says, hey, you want to go get a burger? And I said, yeah, I'll get a burger with you. And so we go over and we start, we talk for about an hour. You know, we're just talking. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I think you're supposed to come and work with me. I said, not me. He goes, yeah. He said, I, he said it would work. It's a young church. It, it, and listen, I'll do Sunday mornings. You do Sunday nights. You could do the college thing. I said, no, I, that's great, but I can't do that because I'm working. I'm working. I just landed this job. You hear me? Did, did you hear that prayer request that got answered? <laughs> I said, I got this job. Nobody's getting jobs, and I landed a job. And I'm going to work my tail off for six months, and if I really do it right, I'm going to get overtime, and in six months, I'm going to save enough money to be back in seminary and go finish my degree. He said, uh, how much are you going to make over there? I said, well, it's X amount an hour. He said, what have we paid you that? I said, I said you know what, this is nuts. Where do you live? He said, Tucson. I'm going, Tucson. I don't even know this guy. He said, will you pray about it? I said, yeah, I'm going to get him. <laughs> I didn't even know this guy. I had no interest. And I went home, and my mom was up, and we were talking, and I said, yeah, a funny thing happened. And I told her about it. She said, that's really interesting. I'm thinking, that's not interesting at all. I said, you know. Guy calls me a couple days later. He said, hey, I talked to guys on the board. We'd like to fly you down this weekend. He said, what are you doing this weekend? He knew I was doing nothing. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm really not doing anything. He said, why don't you let us just fly you down, you come down and take a look. I said, hey, I'm really not interested. I, I said, I'm just telling, I'm not. He said, I know, but why don't you just come down? I said, okay, as long as you know, this really isn't my deal. He said, that's fine, just come on. I come on down. The next Friday, I'm packing my car and I'm moving. And I was there six months, did an internship. I learned more about pastoral ministry. I learned stuff you can't learn in a seminary classroom. I needed that. I was half day through seminary, and I needed some real-life experience. I needed to know what it's like to sit with grieving parents. I needed to know what it is to baptize somebody. I, I hadn't done any of that stuff. And you know what? I, got, I learned all kinds of things. I... And they kept their word. And you know what? They paid me with, I would have worked on the truck. Oh, and here's the other thing. And the economy's still bad. And when I finished the internship and headed back to go to school, they said, hey, you know, Steve, we want to pay your tuition until you finish. That was amazing. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because I'm thinking about going back to seminary and I need you guys to pay my tuition. <laughs> I'm telling you that story because that was one of my first experiences with trusting in God and walking by faith and counting on his promises. It was one of my first experiences. You know, there are some courses that they don't offer at seminary that you only get in real life. And there are some courses that God offers that you would never sign up for. So he signed you up. And he puts you in the course. And can I tell you something? Usually it involves crisis. Oh, and then you know what he does? He makes a way. Just as he did for Daniel. He makes a way. Doesn't matter the economy, doesn't matter the government, because he runs it. He's a great God, and he can be trusted. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Guys are facing different stuff, and once again, help us to live not as atheists. 
Help us to trust in you, the living God. We can't see a way. A year ago we had this and it's gone. Six months ago we had that and it's gone. And we're, and we're running out of options. Now, now, well, now all we have is you. That's the safest place in the world. Help us tonight to trust in you. To make a way. In Jesus' name, amen.